DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from Dr. Lillis's lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's an author of several books, including Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation on Prayer, and Fire from Above, Christian Contemplation and Mystical Wisdom. In this particular series of conversations, we'll focus on the spiritual writings of St. Teresa of Avila, and in particular, her autobiography. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Anthony, thank you once again for joining me. It's wonderful to be with you. We're at a beautiful place in the book right now where she kind of transitions from telling us about her life before conversion to what happens when she begins to pray. But in order to explain all that happens when she begins to pray, she diverts her conversation from herself to the whole idea and notion of degrees of prayer. And so we're at the transition into that discussion right now where we see that this becomes an important understanding. Uh, We like to think about, am I praying or not praying as an off and on switch? But it's maybe more of a a dial that gets more and more intense with different kinds of intensities. So she's trying to introduce that to us in 9, 10, and 11. Nine is so interesting because it almost sounds like it's the end of part one. We were talking about this before we got started. It just seems to me she's saying, okay, now here's the first part of my life before I really experienced the depths of prayer. And if you like it, great. If you don't, pitch it. <laughs> I mean, if she, am, I, am I oversimplifying essentially her disposition? She had the conversion experience where she begged Jesus for the grace not to backslide anymore. But the problem she was having before was that she would begin to pray and she'd start to see all the sin come out. And so it looked like when she was praying, she was getting worse instead of better. And I think a lot of people experience this. It's a cause for discouragement. And she didn't have a good spiritual director. She'll talk about that after she explains the degrees of prayer. She didn't have a good spiritual director help get her through. She just knew in her conscience that she needed to renew the gift of prayer. And and at the same time, she also experienced this discouragement. And chapter 9 is how she turns to the saints, especially St. Augustine's work, the Confessions, and finds in there kind of a pathway to tread that helps her have confidence to keep on making progress and not to go back to her former way of life. She is talking, though, that she is writing this. Is she doing it under obedience, or is this an outlet for her? Yeah, we're going to see in a little bit nine, but also ten. She spends most of ten kind of explaining that she really doesn't want what she is writing to be made known, especially during her lifetime. She's doing it because her confessors and others have put her under of obedience to do it. But what's true, though, is that even during her lifetime, this book was copied over and over again. So it, uh, the Inquisition put it under as a forbidden book, and copies of it were destroyed, but his fastest copies were destroyed, new copies were being made. And that's why we have this book 
now eventually it will come off the forbidden book list right around the time she writes The Interior Castle. As that comes out, the people who are concerned about her teaching have either changed their minds or they've lost their ability to stop the spiritual thing she's trying to do. This part of it, she wanted people to know, even before she died, this part of it that, that we've been going through, where she recounts her sins and her struggle to pray because she thought it'd be edifying for people to see that she too struggled to pray. She wanted people to see the truth of who she was so that all the glory to go, could go to God for the beautiful things that he, he does in her life through prayer. When she's writing this, she's already the foundress of the reform of Carmel. And I believe she's also uh, gone to the in, incarnation to kind of reform the community that she came out of. And so people want to know about it, and she wants to make sure people know that she's a sinner. St. Augustine's Confessions resonates with, with her because he does the same thing in the Confessions. Yeah, it's so interesting reading her. It's fun in a way where when you read the lives of the saints prior to this book, they can be a little flowery. It's indicative of their times, of how they wrote about things. But when you're reading Teresa, especially in this particular passage, I don't know what it is about chapter 9, but there is something in, in film today, in television, where they call about breaking the fourth wall, where she's telling the story, here's the narrative, here's the instruction, and all of a sudden she busts out of that, and she's talking, it's like she's talking to the writers and the editors and the people that she's engaged with, and then she comes back into the story. I can see why it was so popular, because she wrote in a way that I don't know if it had ever been written quite like that before her. I mean, even St. Augustine's great writing isn't necessarily the same as what this great lady's doing. Well, good spiritual writing always has the character of kind of breaking the conventions. St. Augustine's Confessions, there had never been a book written like that before the Confessions existed. It just had never worked before. St. Athanasius, when he writes The Life of Antony, while it's true that it follows a kind of pattern of certain kinds of literature, there was a surprise to it. That is, it talked about the struggles that the hero went through, but the struggles that were revealed weren't like superhuman feats, although he comes off as appearing to be superhuman for dealing with very human things that you need to deal with. And that was kind of the, that you could overcome your own personal stuff and serve God in a very radical way because he gives you the grace to really face that stuff and to deal with that stuff. And so this means that the call to sanctity, the ability to do something great and beautiful for God isn't for a spiritual elite in the church, it's open to everyone. Well, that was shocking. When St. Athanasius first came out with this, it took the empire by storm. Everybody started reading it. And this is what led to the conversion of St. Augustine was they had a copy of the life of Antony and, and he was kind of upset because these people who have no education were entering into the service of the Lord and doing something great and beautiful for him. And he had all this education, but he couldn't imagine living life without sex. This is when he goes into the garden, begs God for the grace to convert because he's drawn to chastity, but he just didn't see how it was possible. And then God speaks to him and it changes everything for him. Where did Augustine get that idea? 
He read it in the life of Antony. This is what happens in the life of Antony. Antony doesn't know how to serve the Lord. He wants to serve the Lord, but he has a farm to take care of. He has his sister to take care of. And it seems impossible to dedicate his life to serve the Lord because the affairs of the world need required attention. And then the Lord speaks to him with the story of the rich young man. And Antony receives it as if the Lord's speaking personally to him. Augustine receives the words of St. Paul. He's speaking per- as if the Lord is speaking personally to him. This is what Teresa encountered when she was before the statue, the Ecce Womo, and she saw him gaze on her with so much love. It was as if Jesus was addressing her personally. When she read the Confessions of St. Augustine, she realized her experience, it was not an unusual experience. She could trust it because the saints before her had the same experience. And I guess the reason why I just share this with you now is, is because I think there are many young people today, and maybe some of you not so young, whom the Lord has begun to address in a very personal way to do something radical. And maybe you have a doubt, like, was that really God? Should I really do this? And the, the answer is, yes, respond to the Lord. Don't be afraid to do something beautiful. He will give you the grace to do something beautiful and great for him because that's what he's created you for. You can rely on him. And Teresa's story is going back to your point, Chris. Teresa's life witness up to this part of her story is the same thing, that the incredible temptation of mediocrity that she had throughout her life up to this point is something that can be overcome. I actually think mediocrity is probably the thing that haunts most souls now. When you don't see how good the Father is and the blessings that he wants to give you, when you can't see that he's the principal player in the world and that the story that he's inviting you into isn't a catastrophe horror story, but actually is a a beautiful love story with uh, incredible adventure. And he's inviting you into the story and it's the real story about what's going on. He makes this personal invitation to you and, and you say yes to it. And then you, you look at it and it looks it does look like a horror story sometimes. You see all the catastrophe and the evil things going on in you. Is God really in control of this? And the witness of Antony of the Desert, the witness of St. Augustine, and the witness of Teresa of Avila all point us to the same thing, that he is in control. It may not always seem like it in the moment, but if we believe in him and live out an obedience of faith as if his mercy was the most greatest reality going on, as if his grace was more powerful than our sin, as if his merciful love was greater than all the powers of uh, cultural, political powers that are kind of at work not only out in the world, but sometimes even in the church. His love is greater than all of that. When we can live like that, It opens up hope for our hearts. It opens up a future for us. And this is what Teresa wants her readers to have. She wants them to have the confidence and the hope of the Christian life so that they they proceed trusting God and a deeper trust in him. When you trust him, it makes space for him to do beautiful things, not only in your own life, but in the world. Mm, Beautiful. I'm glad she was filled with that courage 
it's a tremendous grace. And she was so open to it. And that's what she's doing at this point now. She is articulating here and trust, it's courage and trust, they go hand in hand to be able to submit this work at a time when they don't want to say something or do something that is going to set off a firestorm. Can you imagine if she would lived in this day? <laughs> I just recall the Mother Angelica back in the day, back in the 90s, when she felt that she needed to say some things and she had the means. Teresa of Avila was doing it with her pen and in a very beautiful dance, only one who could use her castanets the way she did. Mother Angelica had that kind of courage to venture out there as well. It's a great gift whenever somebody is able to boldly serve the Lord. The ancient Greek word was paresia. It means a bold or bold speech or bold action. And it's used in a couple ways. In the book of Hebrews, it's with this kind of boldness that Jesus makes intercession for us to the Father, meaning we have bold access to the very heart of God, opened up to us by what Jesus did for us. And in the Acts of the Apostle, the word is used for a different purpose. It's used to describe how the apostles preached in the public square. Right now, my heart is full of gratitude for all the great leaders that I've been able to work with through the years. Uh, and I'm thinking right now, especially of Archbishop Charles Chaput and Fran Mayer. These are two men today who are writing with kind of a certain boldness about what's going on in the church and going on in the world. And Father Thomas Wynandy, these are people who speak the truth with lots of love, and they're kind of calling the church to courage. I remember Archbishop Charles any number of times telling business leaders, look, it's not just my job to speak the truth. I need you to speak the truth in your workplaces and in the marketplaces of ideas. You can't be silent and just go along. You need to engage the fray. Sometimes we also need holy women mystics who are the bold fire, who say stuff that everybody else doesn't think is politically correct to say, but the moment you hear it, it's exactly what needs to be heard. And Mother Angelica was definitely one of those characters for me in my life, and I'm grateful for her, grateful for you, Chris, because I think you're also a voice like that today. So uh, thank you for your, your strong witness. That's very kind of you to say, but I think it's because those women, unlike myself, they are like Teresa of Avila, Mother Angelica, and so many others. It's that, that point where their prayer takes on a character, doesn't it, that they are losing themselves. It's a take on humility that Teresa of Avila offers us that is so incredibly important and has fueled those Carmelite daughters of hers for the centuries that would follow. That's right. And so here she's going to begin to say some stuff uh, about prayer, and she labels a kind of prayer that if we want to be compelling voices today, we need to allow the Lord to give us. And this kind of prayer, it's a mystical prayer. There's two kinds of prayer broadly speaking, two, two main divisions. One division is prayer in which you take the initiative. You wouldn't be able to take the initiative unless God already gave you the grace of conversion. And then ministers to you with many other graces 
that support you in taking the initiative. What, what do I mean by taking initiative is you can't be a passive wallflower if you're going to grow in the life of prayer. You have to make certain certain decisions. And so she has decided that she's not going to backslide in the life of prayer anymore. Well, this means there are certain decisions, disciplines of life that she's going to have to embrace, including making time for prayer every day, making prayer the priority either in the morning or night or sometime during the day or both, all three, making these pockets of prayer and then keep being faithful to them. And, you know, renewing our faithfulness. Saint Anthony of the Desert said, every day we must begin again as if we're making a new beginning for the first time. And that means that every day it's going to be a struggle and you're going to have to take initiative. Well, when you take initiative to pray, you wouldn't be able to do it unless there was a grace of conversion and a kind of grace we call cooperative graces. Graces where God cooperates with your initiative. He's relying on you to choose it because he's given you the grace to choose it and you act on that grace. Then he gives graces that help you to stay with the decision you made, help you stay, be determined, help you persevere. And, and so the more determined and persevering and taking the initiative you are about the life of prayer, the more he's going to be able to bless you. And so that's the whole range of cooperative graces. That kind of grace allows you to access a, a range of a prayer called their, it's ascetical forms of prayer. Ascetical means spiritual exercises, exercises that you can do. And, these, and so when you can pray the Our Father and you take the initiative to pray it and you take the initiative to use your mind in it. You take your initiative to pray it with reverence and devotion. And these are all things that you need to decide to do. And when you do it, God's going to bless you for it. But he's waiting for you to choose to offer that prayer. Just like he's waiting for you to choose to say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Could you say that without his help? No, you couldn't say it without your help. But at the same time, he's not going to force you to say it either. And so that's the, this whole grade. Well, it includes also getting up in the morning. It includes deciding before you go to bed to make that little extra effort to pray before you go to sleep. All of these little extra efforts you make, it could include deciding to fast on Fridays, as the U.S. bishops has asked us to do. Some Christians, many Christians today, also fast on Wednesdays. That's an ancient practice that goes back to the time of the apostles. And so these ascetical activities, when we make time for prayer and we get up and we fast and pray and pray with fervor and devotion, it takes a lot of effort. Well, up till this time, what she's mainly been describing is that kind of prayer. But she's also made reference to that while she was engaging in that kind of prayer, there was another kind of prayer that seized her soul. A prayer that comes in the nature of a surprise that doesn't really come because you've taken the initiative to do it, but it comes in the nature of a kind of an unexpected gift. And she talks about being raised into that prayer. And Early on when she gets raised into this prayer, the first thing that you begin to notice is how unworthy you are of it. It makes you very uncomfortable about your attachment to sin and how prideful you are. So the Lord uses this prayer to begin to humble you. Well, what was going on for her was she was confused. She was seeing the sin and she was thinking that the this gift of prayer was producing the sin, this prayer of quiet, she calls it. It's a great peaceful state of soul. She thought that that was causing the sin. Some of her friends did too. They didn't see how you could have such a, a supply. We call this kind of prayer that's a gift, 
We call it a mystical grade of prayer, mystical prayer. More Catholics, many of us, are blessed with this than we think. We might think it's the prayer that kind of seizes you after Holy Communion when you close your eyes in thanksgiving and all of a sudden you're, you're made totally aware of his presence. You didn't do anything to generate this awareness. You're humbled by his presence. You're, your heart is pierced by it. You maybe even have tears of devotion. You know that it's the most real thing in life when you feel this moment of, of his presence. It's the most real thing, most beautiful thing, and, and you don't see how there can be anything greater in it until he gives you a gift of something greater. But one moment of that kind of prayer not only changes your heart, but changes the whole world in ways that you, you cannot possibly imagine. So that kind of prayer is very, very beautiful. Well, what she wants to do in the second part of this book is explain this transition from ascetical prayer to mystical prayer. She wants to introduce the idea of this prayer of quiet where the Holy Spirit prays in you with a great peacefulness. And she wants us to begin to see where that gift of prayer goes, what it leads to. That beginning prayer of quiet doesn't end with you know making you feel bad about your sin. It leads to a spiritual freedom where even more blessings can be given you. So we're transitioning into this part of the book. And we see this in chapters 9, 10, and then in 11. She begins to explain, well, what's the difference between these two stages of prayer? And she begins to try to help describe it for us in a way that we can understand. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essif, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these videos, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. This prayer that you're speaking of, I, I just can't help but think it sounds so Marian. 
it's a, such a Marian reception of surrender and then a total filling up of the Holy Spirit and that presence. And there was no one who experienced his presence more fully than the Blessed Mother in body but also soul. You're absolutely right. And in fact, if Teresa makes that association somewhere in her writings, I'm not immediately aware of it. I'll have to go through. But I know John of the Cross does. He says the highest level of this kind of mystical prayer, he describes it in Living Flame in the commentary. In the fourth stanza of the poem, around the fourth paragraph, he describes the word waking in the substance of the soul in a manner that sounds like a baby stirring in its mother's womb. And he says, everything is transformed through this movement of the word in the substance of the soul. He says, this is the highest level of mystical prayer that we can know in this life. And while he doesn't directly refer to the incarnation, the whole thing implies the incarnation. It's describing an incarnation of the word as if our humanity has Elizabeth of the Trinity would say, is another humanity in which he renews his whole mystery. Teresa's laid down the foundation for this and beginning to talk about the prayer of quiet, that God can operate in us in a way that's totally beyond our initiative. We sanction it. We still say yes to it. He's not going to do it opposed to our free will. But when he operates in this way, what he accomplishes is truly beautiful. So what is the map through these 9 and 10 and 11? How do we navigate these chapters then, Anthony? In 9, she kind of talks about graces around reading the confessions where that a grace of, that she had on the stairwell is renewed and confirmed. So she's going to go in this direction. In 10, this is where she introduces this idea of the prayer of quiet. And this is her transitional place where she says, up till now, I don't have any problem with telling anybody about what I've I've experienced so far. But now I'm going to talk about grace as a prayer that I'd rather people not talk about, especially in relation to me while I'm living. (laughs) Because she doesn't want to sound like she's putting herself out there as a model for this. But in fact, she ends up doing so precisely because she is able throughout the rest of the book to tell us about the greatness of what God does in the face of her weakness. And that's what makes it such a compelling thing. So in 10, she begins to set this up and she begins to prepare us for an analogy that she's going to use for the next several chapters that we'll unpack in future episodes. But the analogy involves two fundamental elements. One element is water. And she talks about tears of compunctions. The fathers of the church call tears of compunction a second baptism. Our initial baptism cleansed us of original sin and any personal sins we might have had before we were baptized, if we were baptized as adults. And it started us on a pathway of conversion, but we also know that we continue to struggle and we can grow heart of heart. And so the fathers of the church talked about compunction as a, a second baptism where the tears of contrition that we have over our sins and our weaknesses and the lack of love we have in following the Lord, the, our lack of devotion, our lack of reverence, it, it can pierce it to the heart. And as we begin to weep, it it heals our souls. It cleanses us of sin all over again. She describes this as something that the ascetical grades of prayer are after. The ascetical grades of prayer 
seek to dispose us to being pierced to the heart in this way. It's ordered to the gift of devotion. This water, she's going eventually in 11, she's going to call this water from the well. You use spiritual exercises, vocal prayers, and even recollecting yourself in the Lord's presence to try to draw this water from your well. It comes in the nature of the gift. You can't force it. So there's not always water in the well, and that's not your business. Your business is to try to draw water from the well. As you draw water from the well, what is the water for? It's to water the garden of your heart. The garden of your heart is where your virtues grow. Jesus wants to meet you in the garden of your heart. And if you draw water from the well, you make the garden of your heart a beautiful place with your virtues for Jesus to walk with you. Will he come and visit you if it's not such a pleasant place? If you haven't watered, and the good news is, yes, he comes to visit you. I, I like to say that, you know, I have a cactus garden in my heart, uh, <laughs> and he still visits cactus gardens. The more beautiful that we can prepare our hearts for his coming, the more delight he takes in being there with us, and the more delightful our time with him becomes. And so it's this image that she's going to use to begin to help us understand why we need devotion and prayer, why this personal engagement of prayer is so important. And she's going to use this image to help us also to understand this, what she calls mystical wisdom, or sometimes she calls it spiritual theology. What is mystical wisdom? Mystical wisdom is an awareness of God's presence that pierces us to the heart. It's like the gateway into what she calls the prayer of quiet, the gateway into mystical grades of prayer. And in fact, you could say that all the other grades are about an increase of this fundamental gift, this living presence of Jesus. It's a presence by which he's giving himself to us. And the more he gives himself to us, we discover new and deeper freedoms to give ourselves to him. Anyway, and we'll go through this in future shows, but She lays the foundations of that in 10, and then she unpacks it with different kinds of metaphors and images uh, for the next several chapters until she kind of gets into what she calls transforming union. Spiritual marriage is the highest levels of prayer. And so it's going to be a beautiful journey. I'm so looking forward to it. And you know, the thing is, I, I just... On the side, on the side, even though I've been uh, devoting a lot of time re-entering into this wonderful work of Teresa of Avila, it's so interesting. I've been reading some of the writings of St. Gertrude the Great. And as I am, and when you talk about that mystical marriage and her experience and her ability to have that female voice, she has the courage to speak as a female like Teresa. It makes me think that in some ways that we've talked in the past about spiritual reading, and I'm beginning to really understand what you were saying in previous episodes about the importance of those graces that permeated in those people when our disposition of hearts and we're prepared to listen, it can really enter into us too. It's as though they're passing on. It's not just reading a book, but there's something I'm going to use the word mystical that happens. It transcends time in some ways, doesn't it? Yeah, well, when we read their works, 
prayerfully when we read their works to help lead us into prayer, there are graces that happen in that kind of spiritual reading that allow us to even participate in some way in their experiences. We share in those experiences in some way that builds up and increases our own gift of prayer. You know, This is one of the reasons why you should never go into prayer without a good spiritual book or the Bible to be with you. You don't go into solitude alone. It's spiritually too dangerous. And so take one of your spiritual friends or take the Bible, the word of God with you into that silence. And as you go in, you're going to hear and read about these beautiful encounters with the Lord. And these beautiful encounters are to encourage you as you participate, share in their experiences. It deepens you in your own experience with the Lord. Well, any final thought as we begin this great transition in the life of Teresa of Avila? My final thought, I'm so glad that we're doing these shows together right now. We live in a time of great turmoil around the world with wars and rumors of wars and terrible things happening to people's lives. And even in the church, there's a lot of very difficult things that have disturbed people's faith going on. And sometimes with all of that, it's so easy to get caught up in the latest political strife. And sometimes because of your responsibilities and your job, you have to say something, you have to be somewhat involved. But we have to also be so careful about allowing a spirit of of rancor to get us carried away. And Teresa and the Carmelite doctors of the church, the Carmelite mystics, and the women mystics on the whole, including the, the Benedictine women mystics, Gertrude and Hildegard von Bingen and others, they keep us rooted in what matters the most, in the love that Christ has revealed to us. And when you have that vantage point, no matter what else happens in the world, the sun and the moon might fall out of the heavens, but the word of God remains with us forever and it doesn't change. And we need to find that sacred place that they're pointing out to us, that Teresa is helping us find So, Chris, I think it's no mistake at all that you have uh, led us through this study of Teresa of Avila in times such as these. People need to find the sacred place of prayer, and they need to go deep in it, because no matter what happens, God is in control, and he has a beautiful plan. If somebody wants to say we're going through a chastisement, I won't disagree with them, because The father chastises the sons and daughters whom he loves the most. Chastisement is only to help us return to prayer. And what most defines what's going on today isn't the evil or the evil actors in the world. What most defines us today is that God has loved us to the end. And that love is invincible. And in the end, love will win. We need to trust in the love and mercy of God. We need to cling close to Christ. And as you kind of reflected on earlier in the show, and the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, she who is the queen of heaven, she's with us in the midst of all of this too. Thank you so much, Anthony. God bless you, Chris. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com 
or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or on whatever platform you obtain your podcasts. There, too, you can also listen to an audio version of the complete autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.